As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a, at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying the colt? They answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Would you, uh, it shows your thanks and appreciation for Izzy leading our liturgy today. Izzy, who is a proud nominee of the Georgia High School Performing Arts Schuler Awards Best Supporting Performer in a couple weeks. Congratulations. Decatur High School's 9 to 5 program this spring captured all the nominations. And so we're very excited and looking forward to seeing uh, Decatur bring home another trophy and championship in a couple weeks. My name is Mike St. Dennis. I'm the associate pastor here at All Souls. Welcome to you, especially if you're new and visiting with us this morning. We're so glad that you're here, uh, whether you are visiting family here for the baptism on spring break, whatever has brought you near this morning, we're so glad that you're here. Of course, it is Holy Week this week, and so Palm Sunday this morning, you can tell by the decor, Good Friday service coming up this week, and then Easter Sunday as we celebrate next week. Uh, it also, along with Holy Week, is spring break. And so uh, many of our people are traveling. You can pray for them this week that this would be a time of refreshment uh, and joy. And I got to thinking this week because it's happened a few times where spring break and Holy Week line up. Uh, I got to thinking like, how awesome would it be if instead of kind of Christmas being the extended break there in the winter where it's kind of too cold to go to the beach and hang out and have all the fun, what if instead that, that New Year celebration, that long break, what if it happened at Easter? And then I just so happened to come across a podcast where they were talking about different New Years in the past. And so prior to the life of Jesus, the New Year was celebrated around the world. They only counted 10 months in the year. I'm not sure how the moon cycles plays into that and how many in the moon cycles a month supposed to line up or something like that. I was homeschooled. Um, <laughs> so uh, there's 12 months is what I've been told. But anyway, so they would celebrate it in the springtime and it makes sense to me, right? Like, all right, the old dead things are gone. Winter is past and now new life is springing forth and a new year. Time to reset um, and so then I found out as well that the early uh, Christian church did 
celebrate the Easter festival, the feast, and along with the Annunciation, the angel proclaiming the coming Jesus to Mary, that they did celebrate it in the spring with a long celebration. Uh, and so I do propose that over time, if any of you are going to run for political office or whoever's in charge of calendars, uh, that we move uh, the new year to be the celebration here at Easter. Springtime, new life, the new life we have in the empty tomb. Uh, that's my proposal for you this morning. Uh, in fact, after this week, after Holy Week, for us at All Souls in the older Christian traditions, Easter is not just one day, uh, but it's 50 days, a 50-day celebration period of time, just like we have Advent around Christmas. We have the season of Easter that'll kick off. And at All Souls, that means a time of celebration and fellowship. So we did Lent, which is preparing for Easter, and we did uh, a study in the spiritual discipline of engaging with Scripture, and that's our practice to meet regularly, to study and engage in the season of Lent, and then to turn around, uh, to throw our graduation caps in the air, uh, to kick off our shoes, and then the fellowship together. So we've got men's breakfast coming up, youth events that are coming up, fifth grade graduation in May, celebrating our seniors that are graduating and moving on. There's women's events, men's events, uh, all kinds of stuff. So Take a look at your calendar and then, and then invite people into that. Just like you would throw a New Year's party, invite people to come to that. Speaking of which, there are invitation cards for Easter next week. Raise your hand if you ever went to a church and stayed there because somebody ended up inviting you to come and check it out. Raise your hand. Yeah, we'll just call it everybody, uh, even though it's about half. <laughs> invitation, invite them. Um, invite them to come and to celebrate. I'm sure Stephen will have a coat on, uh, the music will be lively, uh, it'll be a good time, so come and join us next week. One of the things that is most exciting about this celebration, and we got to witness it as part of this service, is that Easter marks the end of the confirmation process for many of our students. We had 18 students go through the confirmation class this last year. Uh, some who were baptized in the church very young, and others who've been waiting for this moment to profess their faith, be baptized, and join in, and we had 18 students go through the class and are making plans to join with us after their profession of faith. They met regularly for teaching from our uh, pastors and elders. They met uh, regularly with a mentor, a spiritual guide who could share in their journey, answer questions and talk with them. And then that last obstacle in the way when they completed the process was they had to meet with the elders and the pastors to talk through their faith, to answer questions. And I like to, uh, I, I, it's one of my favorite things I get to do is hear, you know, I spend a lot of time teaching the kids things, and then this was a chance for them to get to recite back and share with me what has God been doing in their life, and how do they make sense out of faith. And so I want to share a little bit with you how I enter into those uh, conversations with them. It says in our guiding documents as a church that pastors and elders should examine the profession of faith for people who want to join the church, whether adults going through membership or our kids wanting to be baptized. And so I start by asking the kids, are you nervous? And uh, about half of them say yes, and I say good. And then the other half say no, and I say, but you remember lying's a sin. <laughs> and then I try to make them more nervous, and then I act flustered and try to be silly. And then I get to this place where I ask them, or, or I share with them what I just said. I'm, I'm in charge of examining your profession of faith. And I got to go around and meet with people and figure out what is their profession of faith. And, 
And are they ready to join the church? And I ask the kids that, and I say, what would you do? How would you do that? Help me out here. And then they proceed to offer a couple different questions. One this week was, uh, do you believe God made the world? Uh, and they would ask, uh, what are the sacraments? You should check in on that. And they would ask these various things. And, and as they would go along, I would pause and say, oh, I have an unrelated question. Uh, who do you believe made the earth? And interrupt that back and forth with them. But then as I get to that 45-minute hour, two-hour mark, uh, we get to that place and I say, there's just, there's just one thing that I'm, that I'm looking for out of, out of everything. There's one thing that's more important than the rest. And I ask them, who is Jesus? And, I, and I'm not looking for them to say Jesus is fully God and fully, uh, fully man, uh, that he is uh, begotten and not created. I'm not looking for some of those things. I have a master's in divinity, and I don't understand all of that, so I don't really expect that they will. But what I'm looking for and what I want to hear is this. Jesus Christ is my Savior he heals me, forgives me. He sees me in my need. He meets with me and comes to me. And Jesus is my Lord, my King. And I ask them, is it possible to join the church, to express your faith, and to say that Jesus is my Savior without Jesus being your King? And what does it mean for Jesus to be your King but not your Savior? You see, all of us, just like these Young students, we tend not to, to avoid being multidimensional. We want to reduce things down to one way of looking at it, one way of relating. And so we want to distill things down, and we end up falling in one of those two camps, that, that we've got all the warm, uh, gooey feelings about Jesus saving us and delivering us and loving us and being near to us. But we're not really sure what kind of power and direction and kingdom he has in store. Or we fall onto the other side, right? Especially if you grew up in the church. We know the kingdom and the rules and the power and the way things are supposed to be. But do we really know him as our savior? And I want to propose to you, and I, I use this often, but I really do mean it. Every day we are answering this question, who is he? The way that you plan your calendar, the way that you plan your budget, the way that you respond uh, to opposition, the way that you think about your own rest and rhythms and patterns, everything that you do in your life, if Jesus claims he's the king, is either moving into his kingdom and answering that he's your savior and he's your king, or something else is sitting on the throne of your life. Either Jesus is directing our path and inviting us into his life and his way of being or something else is clamoring for the throne of your life. And the Savior part is, is important because as we'll see here, God, Jesus is gentle. He does see us in our hurt, as we just said. Those who weep, who mourn, those who need to see heaven's consolation come near, he is coming in that way as well. But what I want us to see today is that Jesus is the king. And in order for him to be the healer, the redeemer, 
the Savior, the Friend, the Wonderful Counselor, and the Prince of Peace. He's also got to be the King. It just makes sense. Two years ago, I woke up in the middle of the night with chest pain. And I was terrified. And thought, finally, all my bad decisions are catching up to me. And so I woke Meredith up and I asked her, what do you think is happening to me right now? And she didn't wake up very well. So finally I determined it's probably better safe than sorry to go to the hospital and get checked out. So I drove myself over here to Cab Hospital. I waited forever. It was the middle of the pandemic. And I finally got checked out. Then I fell asleep waiting for the doctor. And they came in and woke me up and said, sounds like you have heartburn. They diagnosed my ailment very accurately. She said, it seems like you probably do these things in your life. And I said, yes. And she said, you need to avoid fast food. You need to take care of yourself. You need to drop some weight. You need to do these things. And I said, I got it. And then when I got in the hospital after this long night, about 7 o'clock in the morning, I drove down and I turned into Chick-fil-A. And then I kept the heartburn going. We've got to give Jesus the power. If he's going to save us, he's got to be able to diagnose the problem as well. And when he diagnoses the problem and says that something is clamoring for the attention of your heart to be your king, to direct your life, to bring you into its kingdom, when he says that of us, we've got to listen. If he's going to save and heal us, we've got to give him that power and that authority as well. All right, so we had the passage read for us a little while ago, and in that passage, uh, this is a familiar passage, right? Jesus on the donkey, they're shouting Hosanna. We come to it year after year, and with a passage like this that's very familiar to us, it's easy to just import whatever our interpretations of it were in the past, right? So many of us, uh, when we hear the passage read or when we think about Palm Sunday, we can conjure up some sort of image that we've gathered from somewhere. And maybe your image comes from Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ that came out years ago or from the Chosen series that was on recently. Maybe there's, I'm sure there's some famous art that's out there about Jesus on the donkey. Uh, for, for those of us with kids, we got those coloring pages that they're going to go home with today. Cute Jesus there on the donkey. And for me, it comes from flannel graphs, which were these felt boards and little character puppets that you stuck on them from Sunday school when I was growing up. And when I come to this passage, when I was getting ready to preach this last week, I had one view of what was going on here, and then through study, it came to a different conclusion. You see, in my mind, when I think about that scene, when I imagine it, as we were practicing over the last couple weeks, imaginative prayer and study of the scripture, I, I see this picture of Jesus, and maybe you see one similar. It's just really cute, right? It's kind of like a small crowd and band of the people that are closest to him. There's some kids that they're into it. They're, they're doing the pomp and circumstance and waving the palm fronds around, and they're shouting Hosanna. And then there's some adults in the back. If you've ever seen a parade, the kids are going in, and then the adults are like mouthing along. They're kind of half into it, half out. That's what I picture. And then Jesus is there, and he's kind of just putting up with it. He's riding on the donkey, this, this baby donkey, the foal of a donkey, but it's so small he can't sit on it regular, so he's got to be side saddle. It's like not moving very well because it's buckling in the middle. 
And then Jesus has like a white hood or something on covering his face because he's maybe a little bit embarrassed that they're going through all this trouble. And then as they get to Jerusalem, it's kind of like there's much bigger crowds going in and they're off to the side and it's just, it's just cute. Jesus is allowing it to happen and then it's over and he's like, all right, now we've got some work to do. And so then you get this idea of like, is he the king coming in power or is he gentle and lowly? And that's kind of the question that gets posed to us. But when we look at this passage here, it is not the crowd that's putting it on. It's not simple and gentle, but this is a display of power that Jesus himself is in control of in order to proclaim and show who he is. That is, he is on his way marching to Jerusalem to lay down his life and die that we can be healed. He's also taking on his identity and his reign, inaugurating the kingdom of the king who is coming to Jerusalem. Let's notice uh, some things in the passage that are going to show us what Jesus is really about here. All right, the first thing we need to do is notice the timing. So it's taking place at Passover, a high holy feast day, remembering how God delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt, the Passover feast and the blood of the lamb that marks the door. And so Jesus is entering in as we practice at the table that he is the true Passover lamb. This feast that we celebrate is anticipating and pointing to him. So he's putting himself in the place of this, uh, of of the religious deliverance. But at the same time, he's entering in in this high feast day where there was a lot of political tension. So imagine when there's marches on Washington or things going on in the city and there's this tension about maybe there will be some disruption and rebellion. Have you ever seen the police come out in force, set up the barricades already and prepare just in case things get out of hand? In the city of Jerusalem, Pilate, the governor of the region, had come to visit precisely because this feast of rebellion and deliverance was being celebrated. And so Pilate himself would have entered in with his army and his soldiers to come and show a force to keep the people at bay. And as Pilate rides in on his big horse with his army in tow, Jesus parades in on a donkey. But there's a bigger shift going on here that maybe you've seen if you've, if you've read through the whole gospel in a sitting. There's this peculiar thing that happens in the life of Jesus where when he heals people and when he really drops some great truth bombs and people start get, to get excited, he tells them, by the way, don't tell anyone. Keep it a secret. And he sends them back out on their way. It's a very curious thing. It's happened over and over again for 10 chapters. Jesus has done something. They want to tell people about it. And then he said, don't. And then a shift takes place that's marked here in the chapter before in Mark 11 and also in the chapter preceding it in Matthew. Where the day of Jesus' triumphal entry begins in Jericho, 12 miles away from the city, 3,000 feet lower in elevation in the dust in the desert of Jericho. Jesus is there with his followers in a small crowd preparing to go to Jerusalem for the feast. And a blind man named Bartimaeus calls out, Son of David, 
have mercy on me. And that phrase, son of David, doesn't mean anything to us when we read it. But it had to have meant something important because the disciples cry out to him and the crowd cries out, be quiet, don't call him that. And if you know Old Testament history, David is the first and true king of Israel, the one who establishes them in their greatness and superiority. And in doing so, a promise is given to him by God that your son, your heir, will sit on the throne in a dynasty and reign that will never end. Do you know what the word uh, goat means? The name, the phrase? There's a debate, if you've watched any sports uh, talk this week or if you've turned on the radio, somewhere someone was debating who the GOAT is, the greatest of all time. And in basketball in particular, the debate goes between two players. Although first service, we had many honorable mentions thrown out. But the debate goes between LeBron James and Michael Jordan. And you can tell a lot about somebody's age based off who they pick. But in this conversation over who is the goat, this, this, this greatest of all time to receive that label, oftentimes what you'll see with the athletes, because the conversation with LeBron has been happening for a long time. And early on, they say things like, I, I'm just so humbled to be part of the conversation. I love the game. I've dedicated my life to this craft. I'm hoping to build up. I hope someday to be considered like that. But that's not for me to say. And then when you've put together the careers that they've put on over the last five or six years, LeBron has started to say when they ask, are you the greatest of all time? He's like, well, a case can be made. <laughs> but then still, you check my resume. But you know in his life and in his heart, he's aspiring to get to the place to be able to stand up one day when someone says, who's the greatest of all time? He can raise his hand and say, I am. When they say, oh, goat, he says, I'm over here. In Mark chapter 10, the blind man calls out and the crowd silences him. That's not the son of David. Don't call him that. And when he cries out again even louder, Jesus says, come to me. Here I am. And finally, when he heals him, he doesn't tell him to be quiet. But Bartimaeus joins in the caravan and the processional because Jesus is starting to do something different. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes who have walked with Jesus for three years and seen the miracles and are waiting for him to come into power, waiting for him to take over. And then finally, son of David, Jesus says, here I am. Those 12 miles and those 3,000 feet must have felt exciting to them as the tension began to build, as Jesus the King was coming into town. What we see here in the passage as well is that Jesus doesn't just adopt the title and the name, but all of the imagery and the pomp and the circumstances. 200 years prior to the life of Jesus, Israel was under occupation from another force, and a man by the name of Judah Maccabee led a rebellion to throw out the occupiers, to cleanse the temple, to restore Israel to its glory. And when he did so, the city received him 
as the rebel leader, the deliverer, the Messiah, the Savior, and the King, and they waved palm branches. And the palm branches became the symbol of Israel's triumph and defeat over the occupying forces. And so as the people are gathering together to go to the Roman-occupied Jerusalem, they wave the branches. The symbolism comes in because there's a new conqueror at work. Then there's this imagery with the donkey. There's two important texts that have to do with donkeys in the Old Testament. There's more than two passages that have to do with donkeys in the Old Testament, but there's two that we're going to list today. In Genesis 49, as Jacob, who's called Israel, is going to his death and departing blessing upon his sons, he says to his son Judah, who's the ancestor of King David and the ancestor of Jesus, he puts this blessing on him, saying, Judah's hand will be around the neck of the enemies. And the people will bow down like a lion crouching. No one will dare to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from him, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. The nations will bow down in obedience. And you will tether your donkey to the vine and wash your garments in wine. Wash your robes in the blood of grapes. The next time you're out to dinner, order some grape blood. And see what they bring you. This promise is saying that when the true king, the son of Judah, comes to destroy the enemies, things will be so abundant and flourishing and good. The New Year celebration will be so amazing that we're going to do our laundry in the pino. <laughs> then, in Zechariah 9, another prophecy the one that Jesus has come to fulfill. It says, Daughter Jerusalem, your king comes to you righteous and victorious and yet gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The chariots and the war horses and the battle bow will be broken and he will proclaim peace to the nations. He will set the prisoners free from the pit and he will save the people like a shepherd. This choice to get on the donkey and the colt, the full of a donkey, is intentional because Jesus is taking these prophecies and this identity onto himself to confront the people, even his followers, just like he confronts us. Do you know who I am? It says in John that the people are shouting out this Hosanna which is a cry that means save us. I, again, I think of it growing up because I stood on the stage and waved the palms. I'm like, hooray, hooray. But it's this plea, save us, deliver us. And then it goes on to say, blessed, shalom, peace is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, our God, the coming kingdom of our father, David. And again, at this point in time, the Pharisees who are traveling along, embedded with Jesus, look at him and say, tell the crowd to be quiet. It's blasphemy. And Jesus says, if they were to stop, the stones and the rocks would cry out. Jesus is allowing it, encouraging it, taking on the confrontation of the religious and the political leaders Vitalating the expectations or fulfilling them for the people that are around him. Do you know who I am? The most important thing that we need to see here is not just the imagery and how it connects 
or what these events are, but to ask the question, do you see who is in charge? The one who allows the change for the messianic titles to be on him. The one who orchestrates and goes to the town of Bethany, where he had raised Lazarus from the dead to call out the crowds from Bethany who had witnessed his greatest miracle to join in the caravan, to come to his aid as they marched towards the city. The one who calls out and sends the disciples, go and bring me the donkey that I can fulfill this prophecy. The one who says to the Pharisees, they will not be quiet. Jesus is not being put upon. He's not doing something cute. But Jesus is coming to say, I cannot heal you and I cannot be your savior if you do not let me in as your king. This is really hard for us in this present modern age and in our country especially because we decided a couple hundred years ago uh, that we don't need any kings. We'll appoint some leaders from time to time who can do the things that we want them to do, and when they don't, we'll just appoint the next one that we think will do what we want them to do. Uh, but we are free to meet and to free associate with one another. We don't really need to be led. The American dream is finding our own path. This free, self-individual, independent association and expression of who we are to live authentically according to our best dreams and ideas. And we'll add Jesus in as a comforter and as a healer and as a helper, maybe a good teacher and one who can amaze us. But are we ready for him to be a king? I have some friends of mine who served in the armed forces and and were sent overseas to serve as an occupying force. And when they went out to occupy these, these foreign people, in their home countries, they realized that the people only came to them when there was something they wanted. When they wanted them to intervene, to take care of the problem over there, when they wanted them to come and fix their roads or their water systems, when they wanted them to come and settle a dispute or to give them power. To come say, you scratched my back, I'll scratch yours. To turn people over who are their enemies and hoping that they would be judged. They only wanted that occupying force to come and to serve them on their own time and their own agenda. Do we treat Jesus like just another occupying force? One who we can go to when we are in need. One who can tell us it's not a heart attack and then we go back away on our own merry journey. Or do we know him as our king? Jesus comes gentle and yet victorious. He comes in power and victory and yet humbly on a donkey. He comes to welcome us and to save those who are sick and who want no king. To come to the rebel hearts that are in this room to come and say, take my yoke upon you. Come into my kingdom, bow down and serve me. For I am gentle and righteous. I can diagnose and heal you if you'll let me.
the application for this is to bring our questions to Jesus and to let him question us. For him to confront us and our expectations of him. To confront our visions for our life. What suffering will we endure and face and what will we not allow? What comments will we let slide? What sins will we forgive? And where do we draw the line? What demands can Jesus make of us? Will we let him see that his claim, his kingdom, is over everything? And then as he invites us in, as he heals us and saves us, as he leads us in the way everlasting, may we see that fruit of his kingdom to delight in the wine to be with him in all that he does. And all the commentaries and sermons out there, there's only one who pointed this out. But he takes the image of a foal, the colt of a donkey, and he makes this point. First, let me make my point. Uh, there's a place I go hunt for deer and squirrels called Camp Westminster. And they have horses there. And the rules are that unless the horses are up, we can't be out there. Because even these eight, nine-year-old horses that are well-trained, have been ridden forever, when they see things move in the wind and when they get spooked, they may throw off the rider and take off. How much more so with a colt, the full of a donkey that has never been ridden before? And yet when the king of the universe sits, side saddle or whatever it's, the other one's called, when the king of the universe sits on that donkey, unbroken and untrained, the donkey comes into a flourishing relationship to endure the noise, to endure the distractions, to avoid being spooked, to live in right relationship with its rider, with the king that all the crowd might join in that triumphant parade. Friends, if Jesus is going to be our Savior, can we lay down our cloaks? Can we cry out, save us? We cannot save ourselves. And may we know Him as King. Let's pray. God, there's not a person in here that doesn't have a story of wild rebellion uh, where we thought we were right and that things would work out only to find out that it wasn't the case. God, we confess that we do not want to be directed. We do not want to be ruled over. We want you just to come and take care of the problems around us on our own schedule and according to our own agenda. But God, may we humbly surrender ourselves to take our cloaks, to take our pain, to take our suffering, to take our sin, to take our pride, our gifts, our weaknesses, to bring all of it, God, and lay it at your feet because we know that in you we will find our peace. In you we are made whole because you have given yourself for us. We thank you as we come to this table together. 
In Jesus' name, amen.